topic that we're going to deal with today is addictions, on how to be able to, to make good choices, especially when we have repeatedly made bad choices in the past. Um, so I hope that um, this is something that is exceedingly practical um, more than anything else. There's a lot of theory behind um, behind addictions that you can definitely read into, but in a short period of time, we don't have time to go through all of those. So as much as I can, I'm gonna do a little bit of theory and then I'm going to do as much practical as we can um, as we go forward. So well, um, why don't we go ahead and start with a word of prayer then. Father in heaven, we just wanna thank you so much again for this morning and the time to be able to spend um, with each other. We thank you for the beauty of the day um, that we were given the sunshine. Um, the birds that we've heard outside um, our window. We thank you for the um, fellowship of friends and other like-minded believers who are wanting and desiring to serve you and to be equipped to serve you. And so we're asking um, specifically that you would teach us, you would show us, you would give us wisdom that we need so that we can not only be transformed ourselves, but that we can serve and help others in this process, in this journey home. And so um, today I'm asking you to help me, to grant to me so that I can give to others, um, that they may then um, reach from you and give to others. We thank you again for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, we're going to talk about um, addictions. Um, you know, it was interesting. I really, you know, growing up, whenever I thought of addictions, what do we typically think of when we think of addictions? What are the, what are the typical addictions we think of, the common addictions? Caffeine. I'm sorry, caffeine? Yeah. Alcohol. Caffeine, alcohol, smoking. smoking, yeah, caffeine, alcohol, smoking, drugs, um, you know, whenever, um, and um, Dr. Hess probably also still does this now, when you're asking patients questions, um, taking a social history, you know, the most common things that you ask about very quickly are, you know, do you have any um, tobacco um, use? Do you have, you know, the alcohol use? You go through the different questions for that. You do the substance abuses. But how often do we really judge other things, other behavioral addictions, um, or how often, I shouldn't say judge, but how often do we um, ask people or question people concerning other behavioral addictions that actually are affecting their health? Um, and um, it was not something that I did very often until more recently um, when I started doing lifestyle medicine. And one of the things that I found is that, um, you know, at the beginning, I could give people a lot of theory, a lot of um, telling them why things should be how they are. And that's a big step. Knowing why and having the background why helps with getting to the place where they desire and want to make a change. But the actual process of making the change was one that was really quite, um, quite difficult. Um, and I didn't have a lot of tools on how to help. I had lots of theories. You know, we, we have the behavioral change models, you know, people, what stage is a person in and what do you need to do to get them from one stage to the other. But the one thing that my guests kept telling me, and I would see this with patients who would repeatedly come back to the programs. There are some people that come back to the lifestyle programs um, because they just want a refresher. They want a vacation. They enjoyed it. It was a good experience while they were here. But there were quite often people that were repeatedly coming back to the programs, sometimes within a year, two years, um, and this would be the third, fourth time, and they're like, I just can't get a handle on my behaviors. I always fall back into this, you know, how can I, how can I transform this? How can I change this? I just, I keep coming here. I feel good when I'm in the protected environment, right? So when I don't have the options for other choices, I make good decisions. Well, I don't have any other choice. Now, now we did every once in a while. You, you would, we would come across somebody who would bring 
you know, extra food from home or other things from home, and they would eat in their room. So you know, there you had people that that did. But outside of that, if they didn't bring things in, um, people could make good choices while they were here. And you know, we did a great job, and we thought we did a great job. Yay! We you know, we helped people be able to make choices and decisions, and they did great while they were here. Um, but then we started asking the question: Well, are they successful though when they leave? Because that really is what counts. Because not just being successful here and having a good experience here is fine, but what happens long term, and what is it that is preventing people from being able to be successful long term? And um, as we looked at this, there were a couple of things that I started to, to recognize, and I kept asking the question: Where and why? And and being that we were that both here at Weimar and at Wildwood were a Christian institution. Um, the Bible has to have something to say about this because the Bible is talking oftentimes about choices, choices that we need to make, things that we need to do. And what does God actually say about that? And again, um, interestingly, what we'll find is that what science mentions and what the Bible mentions are actually very closely parallel. And we'll, we'll look at what those things are, um, what... Um, what, uh, what, what does the Bible have to say about this idea of what I um, call overcoming, what the Bible and the scripture talks about as overcoming, and how does that apply to us in our addictions? Um, quick thing on the theory of addictions, dopamine, right? Everybody's favorite little neurotransmitter in the brain. Dopamine, we get pleasure from certain things. I, you know, multiple of us, I think in, in um, uh, when we talk about addictions and behavior change, we ask the question, how many of you, and we, we seem to choose the same vegetable every time, I think, but how many of you are addicted to broccoli? How many of you, when you look at a pile of broccoli, just can't resist it? You know? And, and you forget everything else, and you eat the broccoli first and don't have room for the dessert later, right? Is that usually what happens? No. What usually happens? What is the typical course of behavior for those who have addictions? Now, again, there are those who have overcome in, a, in areas of addiction, but what typically is the pattern for those who, have, who struggle with addictions, especially with food? I can be silent for a long time. <laughs> just, I'm just playing. No, no. no. What, what, is it, what do they, people typically go for um, first, or what do they consume first if, they, if, they, like if, if there's dessert there, or if, they, or if they can't finish, they've got to make a choice. You know, they've eaten part of the salad. Um, and they're really starting to get full, very commonly, and you'll watch, you know, I, we used to eat um, um, breakfast, lunch, and dinner with our guests while we were here, on, or breakfast and lunch while we were here on campus with the, with the patients, and, and I told them, I'm not here to comment on what you're taking and what you're eating and whatnot, but what I wanted to do was just to kind of look at behaviors and patterns and what, how do people eat and what are, they, what are they choosing when they're making these decisions, and you would find a very common thing. Those that struggled with addictions, if they got really full and they had to make a choice between what they were going to finish, if they were halfway through the salad and there was still dessert left, they would forgo the salad and then they would finish the dessert. Or if on the other hand, um, they came to the point where they were all, they were full. They actually were pretty full at this point, but they're, they really just craved something else to eat. Nine times out of ten, you never saw anybody go back up to the salad bar to pick something. It was usually either the main entree or the savory dish or the whatever else it was that was over there. And the question was, what, what makes these choices? And you'd ask them, well, are you hungry? Well, no, I'm not really hungry. I'm actually really full. I really, you'd hear the phrase over and over again, I really shouldn't be going back up for this, but... 
and we're trying to figure out what, where, what do behaviors do. With, with dopamine, what happens is there are certain things, certain processes, certain chemicals that tend to have and give us the sense of pleasure. Okay? Broccoli doesn't contain a lot of those chemicals <laughs> that do. Now, it gives us a sense of pleasure, but it doesn't lead to what we eventually term as, as um, addictions. Because what happens in the brain of a person who is addicted, you actually look at, um, at, the, at where dopamine um, is used in the brain, and they're no longer, as they proceed in the course of the addiction, they're not able to light up that area of pleasure with the same amount of dose of whatever the addiction is as they did before. So if you looked at a brain map, you would look at the, um, the area of pleasure after consuming, let's say, a chocolate sundae. You know, initially, if you had looked at it many years before, it would really light up and it would be red and they would get pleasure from, you know, that small little cup of, of a chocolate sundae. Okay? But then, later on, as you are um, looking at them um, later, um, let's say, you know, once they've gotten into the process of addiction, and they come to that, amount, that, that little Sunday or that thing, they don't seem to gain as much pleasure as they did before. But what is even more challenging is that they really can't find pleasure in other things either. So they continue to either do one of two things, repeatedly go back to what had given them pleasure before, even if it may not be really giving them pleasure anymore, or they will go back and find something else that will feed or satisfy that addiction. And this is one of the things that is very important to understand when you're trying to overcome addictions. You don't want to go from one addiction into another. Right? One of the, the interesting things they found that people were very, they would be very successful at being able to help them quit smoking. But what would concurrently happen and what is a very common thing that you would find for people who end up quitting smoking? And in fact, it's a reason for why some people say that, that they don't want to quit smoking. They're afraid of something happening. What is that? Gaining yes, there it is. Gaining weight. Because what happens? Is it, is it, and I remember sitting there and thinking, is there something about the nicotine that kept them skinny? And, and in, to some degree there was. It changes appetite, okay? But... Very commonly, when you looked at the seminars, the things that talked about helping somebody quit smoking, they changed the habit of smoking for usually another oral satisfactory behavior of some kind. Gum, candy, eating something. And, and so we used to tell them, well, chew some gum or eat some candy or Twizzlers was a big thing that people used to, to mention before. Um, but they would, they would do this and then they would, um, then we changed it to, well, just chew on carrot sticks or celery sticks or something else, but it was still centered around food as being the thing. Now, again, they, by God's grace, they were able to successfully get off the nicotine, but many of them found themselves saddled with another addiction. In fact, I sat on the plane with a lady um, on the way here from Denver to Sacramento. Um, she lives in the area, and she was saying she gave up alcohol, she gave up smoking, but she, is, she cannot get over the, the weight issue. And we were talking back and forth about this. And, and in quitting smoking, she gained a desire for a lot of food, other foods. And um, in fact, she eats a lot of healthy food, but she prepares them in ways that still stimulate the pleasure. So she takes homegrown vegetables and puts a lot of oil and salt and frying and whatnot in them, you know, in the sense that they've changed one behavior for another that still satisfies the pleasure, but she can't find 
another substitute, another quote-unquote healthy substitute for the for the current behavior that she has, which is the addiction with the eating. And then, and I think she, you know, when we were talking, while she was sitting on the plane, she was trying to avoid some of the snacks that they had on the plane. And so to avoid the snacks on the plane, she would, she ate, I think, like three or four Werther's original candy, um, candy, hard candy things. So again, it's interesting as you watch behavior, and many of us probably recognize the same patterns in ourselves. And what happens is we don't get that same pleasure response as we did before. Fat, sugar especially, are two things that simulate that, which is why we're encouraged when you are um, eating a healthy plant-based diet, when you're transitioning to a healthy plant-based diet, you're encouraged not to use excess amounts of fat and sugar even when you're going to something else, even if it is plant-based, you know? Um, Oreos are vegan. Oreos are vegan. And I, I you know, I, I told you about my, my, you know, I really had a sweet tooth fixation growing up. I remember growing up and I remember my parents leaving the house, and I would quickly grab a piece of bread, and I, I cannot even remember the first time that I did it, but I'd grab a piece of bread and I would put sugar on the bread and eat it. I mean, really, when I think about it now, I'm thinking, not even you know a spread that had sugar or whatever, but straight sugar on the bread and eat it. I remember thinking, what is wrong with me? What is it? But that sugar then turned to Oreos. I used to eat whole bags of Oreos, half a um, and it was always combined with a medium bag of Cheetos and a quart of milk. In, and we would sit there and we'd do this once a week as comfort food. And the question was, what, is, what was going on? But here's the thing. I'll tell you an experience just actually this morning. Um, you know, we, if any of you who have gotten the breakfast that we serve here, they gave me a little thing of the soy milk. And when I first became a vegetarian, I remember... Um, Someone, um, it was actually at a, um, a Presbyterian University in college, someone found out that I wanted to become a vegetarian and I, you know, I did it for about two days and then I failed miserably and I, and I was like, that's it, I'm not ever doing this again. Well, one of my students, I, I was a senior in college and one of my students who was a ment my mentee, um, he said, hey, I already wanted to become vegetarian. Let me teach you how to eat in the cafeteria as a vegetarian. And so he, he um, showed me around the cafeteria and he said, hey, here is the... Um, here is, did you know that they have soy milk here? You can actually get soy milk. And when I first went to go and get soy milk for my cereal in the morning, I always picked the very vanilla. Now, if any of you ever remember drinking soy milk the first time, you drink the very vanilla. It's sweet, okay? It is very sweet, but I could not drink plain soy milk. I mean, I remember thinking, this has no taste, it has no flavor, I get no... But over the years, as I had let go of the sugar fixation, now, I, you know, when they gave us a breakfast this morning and it was just the vanilla, plain vanilla soy milk, I couldn't do it. It was too sweet. Just that on its own was too sweet. How is it that I could have gone from needing a whole bag of Oreos? And you know why I ate the Oreos with the Cheetos? How many of you have probably seen it? Some of you may have experienced it. Yes. Sugar and the salt combined. The sugar makes the salt taste saltier and the salt makes the sugar taste sweeter. And there's this thing, and I knew that if I combined the two together, I could get the maximum amount of pleasure from the food that I was eating. And again, you know, there, how could I go from that to now? I don't desire dessert that often. Yes, yes. They want you to buy their product. Then. And you know, when you think about it, you, when you look at certain products, you'll, ask, you'll sit there and think to yourself, 
why on earth is there sugar in this? This makes that it makes absolutely no sense. Or why is there salt in this? It makes no sense for there. It's not there as a preservative. It's not there as whatnot. But again, it is mixed and it is put together. Yes, those are your fat. Yeah, those are, and those are the things that trigger that trigger, trigger our dopamine, our pleasure receptors, and our sense. So the question is, okay, how do we overcome? And what I'd like to do is actually take you through um, through a scriptural combined with a, the, a scientific picture um, of what actually happens. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to actually go to Revelation 12 because here's the challenge: many of us have tried and in fact succeeded for a period of time. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 12. Many of us have tried for a time and maybe succeeded for short periods of time. I've had patients who have even succeeded in changing their lifestyle for about a year and then go find themselves back in the same situation that they did before. Okay? And again, the question is, what is it? Why is it that, you know, because some people can go on their own strength for a period of time, but, but it doesn't. And um, I'd like to actually look at what scripture actually says about overcoming and how we overcome, right? We're told to overcome. But the beauty is that scripture actually tells us how we can overcome. Um, can someone read Revelation 12, verse 11 for me, please? So they overcame him by what? There are two things that are listed there in, the, in scripture. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And we're going to look at these two things. Because one thing that has to come in mind, and we're going to look at repeated themes in this over and over again, when what when the Bible is saying concerning um, concerning our um, addictions and concerning overcoming, turn to First John, chapter five. If you go back just a few books, First John chapter five, verses four and five. Okay. We're trying to figure out who and what can overcome and what does the Bible practically have to say about this. So we figured out from Revelation 12:11 that if a person overcomes, they overcome one by the blood of the lamb and two by the word of their testimony. Okay? And we're going to look at that third aspect that's re- recorded in Revelation a little bit later, but um 1 John 5 verses 4 and 5. All right, I'll go ahead and read this. For whatever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the victory that overcometh the world even our faith who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that jesus is the son of god over here in scripture we're again told who is it that overcomes according to scripture the very first verse actually says first what born of God. You have to be born of God first, right? It says that he who is born of God overcomes the world. It doesn't say sometimes overcomes the world, will will sometimes be able to, will, you know, 90% of the time will be able to. It says those, he who's born of God will overcome, okay, the world. Don't get discouraged yet. There are times when I've looked at this word and thought, what, did I not have a conversion experience? Did I, is, it that, is that why I'm stuck on this? Well, we're going to go through this, um, but Whatever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world. What is that second component of that? And actually, it's linked with the first one. Even our faith. Okay? Even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the the world, but he that believeth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? We're seeing a repeated theme over here again. Okay? Um, Let's look at... um, First John verse four or chapter four and verse four. Okay. 
Paul and John do a lot. Actually, they, just, they, they write quite a bit concerning overcoming. You know, and I, I appreciate John, um, the disciple, writing concerning overcoming, because when you look at his life before, when he was with Christ and the way that he lived, and you looked at his impulses and his desires, they're very different than his post-conversion experience. And as he's growing, something has changed in, Paul, in um, John when, from when he was with Christ in the Gospels and what was written of him and what happened um, later. So 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. This is talking about, you know, it's, it's in the context of Antichrist, false prophets, other things, but it's talking about overcoming again. Because what? What does it say? You've overcome them. Why? Because he who is in you is greater than what? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's a real war going on. Ephesians tells us, right? We war not against flesh and blood, right? We, over, we, we war against others, against principalities, powers of darkness, right? There's a real war. And if we miss this point... There is no theorizing a way that can get us past our addictions. Okay? You can know all the theory. You can know why your addictions exist. You can know the consequences of it, your addiction. And you can repeatedly ex experience the addictions over and over again. And you can see the addictions. Let me tell you for myself, I didn't struggle. I really didn't think I had addictions. You know, I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't drink caffeine. I don't drink alcohol. But when I looked at my food addictions and then other behavioral patterns, like not sleeping, okay, choosing not to sleep, that became an overwork, became an addiction. And it was justified because it was doing good for other people. I didn't do it for money. I really had no desire for the money, but I wanted to help people. And, it, and there was a pleasure and there was a joy that came from helping people. And it was repeatedly affirmed, not just by myself, but by other people, right? That's a harder addiction because of the fact that it is an addiction that is actually affirmed, you know, within the church. This is good. You're, you, you stayed up all night to make sure this project was done. You stayed with that person over and over again. You did it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And it keeps going on and you cycle it over and over again. But as we're doing this, we're, we, we don't recognize something Something, um, something is, is in there. There is a war that goes on. And when people asked me, why do you do this? I did not like how I felt when I didn't have sleep. I was miserable. We know that in the brain, a person who does not sleep is functioning the way an alcoholic will. And that includes driving. And I remember falling asleep at the wheel many times. One time, I ended up getting um, spinning across five lanes of traffic, got dragged under, or went under a semi, got dragged by the semi, and then the person who, who, who I guess was watching and trying to help out in the situation, and I'm not sure exactly what they were doing, but the witness who came said that they saw the front of the, the um, uh, truck, the trailer, the 18-wheeler, the um, lifted up, and then I spun back across five lanes of traffic and came to the only patch of grass right in front of a bridge. Had no hurt, okay? Not hurt. And you would think that at that point, I would say, okay, this is it. This isn't good. You can't just keep pulling these kind of hours, right? But for another two and a half years, I continued 
to keep this behavior pattern because I would you know be fine for about I, I would for about two maybe three months I would be diligent about you know getting out of work on time not trying to fix every problem not trying to do whatever and then about two or three months later what's the next thing that would happen I'd be back in the same pattern yet again coincide back doing the same exact thing I even I had fallen from a building when I was 15 months old and I lost the left parietal lobe, um, atrophy, the left parietal lobe of my brain completely. And you know, when you're young, your brain can actually recover a lot of that function, okay? Um, you can't even tell that there's anything wrong in an EEG, but if you do a CT scan of my brain, it looks a little hollow on one side, side over there and it scares a few people if they don't know what it is that's gone on. So I'm in the hospital, um, first year that I'm out, now in residency you're a little protected in the sense that you could work 80 hours, they, and, but you had to have 10 hours between your call shifts. I would probably get about eight hours really because they didn't regulate it that much. Um, but I would um, get those 10 hours and, and then I would have, like, once, once every three or four months I would have a, a, ward um, a clinic rotation where I didn't have to be on the wards continuously. Okay? So I'd get that break and I guess my brain had a little bit of a chance to recover. But once I was out practicing as a hospitalist on my own, it was, it was done. I, I was working those hours, literally 80 to 110 hours a week, consistently every week. And on the weekends, we, there were only three of us, we covered the ICU for 72 hours. And if it was a bad weekend in the ICU, you were there the entire 72 hours in the hospital repeatedly. The, I remember finishing, finished our, it was three weeks on, one week off, finishing the end of a third week. I'm grounding, it's the very end, finally on a Sunday, I'm finishing some rounding on some patients. I go to the last patient, and I ended up starting to feel really funny. Something's not right. I was like, oh, I can't, uh, you know, it's sort of like your, your, if, if anybody wanted to describe an out-of-body experience, that would, what, that's what I would equivocate an out-of-body experience to be. But I knew it's not an out-of-body experience. Something is not right. And all of a sudden, I told the patient, I think I'm about to pass out. I'm sorry. And I sit down on the bed, and that's the last thing that I remember. And I had my first grand mal seizure in front of a patient. Okay. Usually they told us when you have, you know, with, um, with a lesion of the brain, the likelihood of having a seizure past the age of um, 18, your first seizure past the age of 18 is very low, very low likelihood. But I was repeatedly, the trigger, I mean, for doing literally from medical school on through, through working, you know, through residency and then through working afterwards, actually could, I mean, could not stop. Now you would think again, right? You, you have a seizure in front of a patient. You're done, right? No more, no more of this, right? But what happens to addictive behavior? I actually went home that evening and I got up and I went back to work the next day. Right? And my boss, you know, I'm starting rounds, I grab the sheet, you know, grab my pacing patients that I had over the weekend and starting to round. My boss comes storming in and asks me, what are you doing here at work? I was like, well, what else am I gonna do? I'm not gonna sit at home. I mean, what am I gonna do at home? This is, I, I, these people need, and I've got to finish this that I started on the patient, and the family member is going to come in, and I've got to talk to them. And he said, oh, someone else can take care of that. I was like, no, I mean, what am I going to do at home? He said, go home and think. I don't know what you're going to do, but go home and think. Because this can't happen again. You can't have a seizure in front of a patient again. You know, it took several, it, it took, 
It took a while before I finally made the connection. And even then, I still struggle in the area of not taking on responsibilities. And these are types of behaviors and addictions, things that give us pleasure, satisfaction, that we don't know how to stop unless there is, unless there is a change that happens in us. Because people would ask the question, why do you do this? And I couldn't give them an explanation. I know it's wrong, but I can't give you an explanation as to why I do it. Um, we looked at 1 John verse 4, 4 verse 4. Um, Greater is you that he that is in you than he that is in the world. This war that is going on us. What I want to ask you this. Actually, just turn to Philippians 2 verse 13 for me. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. Because let me tell you, I went through, I made lists, okay? All the reasons why I should not be eating this way or all the reasons why I should not be going and working repeatedly. I mean, I could theorize it, but I still couldn't step forward and make the choice. Philippians 2 verse 13. Right before, it's talking about, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is who? It is God. That's right. It is God which worketh in you to will, to both do, and to both will and to do of his good pleasure. What is the common three theme through all of these things, these verses that we have read? How much of this can you do apart from him? Nothing. There's nothing. Right. We're told in the Bible that apart from him we can do nothing. But understand that when you're faced with repeated behaviors over and over and over again that are destructive, trying to fix the behavior apart from God will not be successful. It can be successful for a time and sometimes People can look like they're successful in changing a behavior, but oftentimes all they've done is change one addiction for another. And sometimes a more acceptable addiction. And so it looks like we may have gained victory when we really haven't truly gained victory. I want us to go back through to um, 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. You know, I, I sat there and I struggled and I asked God, okay, look, I understand this has to be done through you, but, but how? I, I, it doesn't make sense. Help me understand how I can do this. Because I'm not choosing it. I know I need to, but why can I not choose it? 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. And at the end of verse 4, it said, This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Now let me ask you something. We're told that everybody is given a measure of faith, right? But not all of us exercise that faith. How can that faith be grown and be exercised? Does the Bible give us any instruction as to where we can gain that faith? Well, it says faith comes by hearing, yes. hearing by the word of God. Yes. Where is that? Where is that? Where that 
Yeah, where the I, I know it's okay. No problem. You know, I and I'll tell you something. These are things that I have I've had to look up and I've had to to look um look over and over again. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10 verse 17, okay? Let's go to Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. We're told that we need to overcome it and that it comes only through God. If you are trying to face an addiction or a behavior that you've been repeatedly doing that has been destructive, if you're trying to do this apart from God in your own will and your strength, I'm telling you eventually it will fail. I'm telling you it because the Bible tells us that when we overcome, we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. We're told um, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world and that is how we overcome when we look at romans 10 and verse 17 it says and and we're told um just as we had read that the victory that overcomes the world is our faith romans 10 chapter chapter 10 verse 17 so then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of god And it's funny, we've heard these words before, we've heard these verses before. What does that mean practically? I didn't understand, I'm telling you, I've been there, I've been in the struggle over and over again. And let me tell you something, it took, interestingly, a, um, a, a secular um, experiment done to be able to help me kind of understand this a little bit more. Um, there's a thing called decision fatigue. I don't know if you guys have heard of the, a lot of the studies and the experiments that have been done on decision fatigue. What, does anybody know what decision fatigue, or what would you think decision fatigue means? Tired of making decisions, right? What happens when you've made decisions over and over and over? Some of you who are helping out with GYC and you've been trying to put this thing together and you've had to make decisions between this and between that and this. What happens by the end of the day? If somebody asks you to make a decision with something really even simple, the last thing you want to do is to make another decision. And in fact, I remember, you know, after entire days in the hospital or in the clinic and helping people struggling through this and that and making decisions and what do I do? Oh no, we, a patient without insurance, what am, how am I going to help them do this? And so we try to sort it out and figure out at the end of the day, my husband will ask me something simple like, well, what do you want to have for... Um, lunch tomorrow, you know, to take to lunch tomorrow. I'm, I'm like, stop, no, no, don't, don't ask me. I don't, I don't want to, I, I can't think, I can't make that decision. You just make me, he said, it doesn't matter, just tell me. I said, no, no, I can't make that decision. I don't have, I cannot make that kind of decision right now. You, um, you've got to make the decision. I don't care what it is. And of course, you know, then he makes a decision and then I'm like, well, I don't really like that. <laughs> no, and it's funny, because the thing is we can comment on decisions but, or comment on decisions that are made, or, but we cannot, it's, it's, it is a physical thing that is found. We have a very difficult time with actually making the decision, and we'll see what actually happens. So one of the things that they found is this, and there was a gentleman by the um, name of Jonathan um, Lavav, if I remember correctly, from Stanford, and um, another gentleman from a university um, in Israel who had published a study looking at judges making decisions, okay? Judges that made decisions, they analyzed over a one-year period 1,100 decisions that were made by judges, okay? Same prisoners that would come and see them with very similar, in fact, you know, one of the, one of the um, cases that they looked at, there were three people convicted for the same crime, they were all equally as guilty, equally as involved, whatnot, but they each had different times of the day that they went before the judge. 
Okay. Who is it? You know, guys, seen at eight, I can't remember exactly the times. There's one scene at 8:30. I know the last one was sometime like 4:30 in the evening, and there was one maybe at 11 o'clock. Only one of the three actually got out on parole. They all had the exact same crime because you know, no criminal history prior, exact same crime, exact same involvement. Who got off on parole? Actually, interestingly, it was the first one. The judge was, was more able to weigh and to look at the decisions and to say, okay, you know, they could potentially improve or get better or whatnot. By the time he got to the end of the day, everybody. In fact, what they, the results that they found was that those who came earlier in the day, 70% of the time, they would get parole. By the end of the day, the latter third of the day, 10% of the time would they get parole and they would usually get a harder and more. In fact, those that would, would be making it, would be get a decision made or a sentence gotten at the end or the latter part of the day would sometimes get a heavier sentence than even those earlier in the day. Okay. But they would see this repeatedly. There was a thing called decision fatigue. Um, the um, Roy Baumeister, he was another, he's another um, gentleman who has um, looked at decisions and the process of us making decisions. Um, he had a, a, a postdoc, Jean Twin, Twinge, I believe is her name, who was in his lab, and she looked at decision making, okay, for people trying to make decisions. Um, she had just completed, I think she had just gotten married, um, and you can remember, if any of you remember going and registering for something at the wedding and you had to make repeated decisions and just got fatigued and tired and, and um, in making those decisions over and over again, and she said, by the end of the time, someone could talk me into doing anything by the end of the day. Right. The interesting thing is, so what she and her, her um, uh, com compadre in the lab did is they went and they got a whole bunch of items, um, out of you know from a thrift store and they had people come in to make decisions and what they would do is they would ask them repeatedly okay to make certain decisions but before they would make a certain you know whatever this final decision was that they had to make they would ask them a whole series of questions do you want a pen or a pencil do you want a candle or a or a you know do you want a candle or a or a um a glow stick or something or whatever, flashlights, yes, there you go. Um, do you want, um, would you like um, dessert or w you know, would you like a chocolate dessert or a vanilla dessert? Would you like this salad dressing or the other salad dressing? And then they would have them, by the end after they'd gone through these series of questions, they would have them then make a decision. And what they would find is that by the time that they had, they would come to the end, many of them couldn't make very basic, simple decisions concerning something. I mean, just, just basic, simple decisions. Another very similar um, experiment that was done was looking at people um, who had to make um, who had to make decisions. Um, uh, who had to make decisions? Um, if I remember correctly, um, if it was on the color. Uh, now I'm trying to. I'm, I'm confusing the two studies now. Um, they had to, to make decisions um, commenting on whether they would want one um, item or the other. But here's the thing. The two people had to make decisions. They were given a whole series of the same type of thing. They had to make you know, decisions between the candle and the flashlight, pen and the pencil, etc. Another group, all they had to do was they would look at the, um, the pen and the pencil and they would just comment on, oh, which one was nicer? Oh, this one is a little bit nicer because of this. Or, what about the candle or the flashlight? Do you do you like them? What do you what do you think about the candle or the flashlight? If they didn't have to make a decision by the time they came to the end, they were actually able to very quickly and effectively make whatever decision was necessary. Okay. 
this thing was repeated by um, Baumeister, where they actually had people um, uh, given um, pagers. And they would call, they would page them in periodically just to see what they were thinking about. What was their thought process? What, what were they going through at the time? And what they found is that most of us spend about three to four hours total in the day. Okay, so you've got a 24-hour period. You're maybe sleeping six to seven hours of that time. But three to four of the rest of your remaining waking hours are actually spent resisting desires of some kind or the other. Could be things such as, you know, um, you know, certain thoughts or certain things you should eat or not eat. It could even be things such as choosing to be on Facebook at work when you shouldn't be. Um, you know, whatever it was that they would find three to four hours a day, the average person spends just trying to resist certain desires. And what would happen is that the later and later in the day that that got, the more, or, and it doesn't even have to be later, if they had to make a large series of decisions all at one time, by the time that they made a, a decision a little bit later, they, they could not, they would predictably make the wrong decision or decision that they would regret um, afterwards. The question is, was there any hope? And this is, this is a research that was actually done by a gentleman um, rounding. Let me just pull this up here. Um, an experiment that was done by um, uh, by this uh, thing. So what what they actually did was this. Um, Rounding and his colleagues had people given a really bitter drink. I think it was orange juice and vinegar. Okay? Yeah, I know. Did I? <laughs> the, the look on your face thinking, oh, what on earth is that going to be like? Orange juice and vinegar really tasted horrendous. And they would have people drink it. And they would, they would look at it and say, look, this is a really horrendous um, horrendous tasting drink. But what they would do is they found this. Um, if a person drank maybe three or four or five of those, they couldn't keep drinking, couldn't persist in keeping or making making the decision to, to drink that drink, okay? There was another uh, set of experience in this whole series in which they were asked, well, do you want $5 today or would you like to come one week later and get $6, okay? This is similar to the experiments, um, I think the marshmallow experiment that they did with kids, that if you guys remember from a while ago. So they're trying to have them delay certain gratification desires, okay? Um, what he found with the, the um, patients was this. He would give them words to scramble. Okay? They had 10 letter words that they needed, or 10 um, word phrases that they needed to scramble. The words that they had to scramble were, us were usually mostly secular, neutral words is what they would call it. The other group... So there are two groups. The one group had to scramble certain words that were neutral. The other group would have to scramble words that contained some kind of religious theme in it. Okay? What he found was this. No matter how, um, how much it was, we found that participants who unscrambled sentences with religious words were able to perform significantly better at those tasks. And in fact, one of the comments that he made that was a little bit stunning to this is this. Our most interesting finding was that religious concepts were able to re refuel self-control after it had been depleted by another unrelated task. Understand that Rounding is an atheist. And his thought, he had said before, you know, and I'll actually give you his comments, but he said, in other words, even when we would predict people to be unable to exert self-control after completing the religiously themed task, they defied logic and were able to muster self-control. And these are people who, when in their experiment, if I remember correctly, 
Um, 80% of them did not claim to have any particular faith at all. Okay? So they didn't even have much, um, much background in religion and spirituality. But just being, th having the thought of something that they knew or recognized as being religious in nature made them rethink and look and refuel their ability to, to be able to, um, to exert and, and give some kind of self-control. And he saw this repeatedly over and over again. Why? Does the Bible have anything to say about that? We talked about keeping our mind, right? Um, keeping our mind on Christ. Why don't we look at um, Romans 12, verse 2. Okay? Romans 12, verse 2. And then we're going to look at another, um, another uh, verse after this. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. The first thing that we're asked actually back in verse 1 is, that, is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Then it says, be not conformed by this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What rounding found was this. When our mind is stayed, as we, as we looked at the verse, um, verses even yesterday, when our mind is stayed actually on God, when we, have, when we actually behold the things of God, we are better able to actually make decisions. And how much more for the Christian who has an arsenal from which to draw from? Or if you don't, how much more the ability to be able to find those resources where you need to. Let's look at um, 2 Peter chapter um, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 actually uh, 2 through 4 Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him that had called us to glory and virtue. Whereby, and it tells us now how, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Something happens when we actually keep our mind on something else, on things that are above. And let me tell you, what we have found with our patients over and over again, I'll give you the most recent example. We um, had a patient where I was in, in, um, in Wildwood who he and his um, son came up. He has actually been, he's, he's, um, he's not an Adventist, I'm trying to remember, he's actually, he is a Christian. Um, he has come three times, uh, this was the third time that he had come up to Wildwood, okay? Made changes each time, was able to lose weight, did great, but then he would go back home and he would last about um, six weeks and then he was back into the addictive habits and patterns again, okay? But he would come up and he would bring family members each time, try to help them, and I think his son, it had been his second time that his son had come up. 
one of the things that I did um, for we did is that we actually put him on a fast um, for 72 hours the first time, and mainly it was to give him um, give him a chance to be able to not be stimulated repeatedly by the the foods that he had had before. Okay, so not going back and make not reinforcing those choices and those foods that he'd had before. Um, but additionally, during this time, what I asked him to do is this. I told him, I want you to arm yourself. You're going to start making choices to eat in about three days. So it's on 72 hour fast, you're gonna make choices to eat. But I want you to arm yourself and to write down verses, scripture, promises, something, things that, are, that you can look to and turn to when you've got to make decisions. And I said, I want you to do it now because first 24 hours of a fast are usually pretty easy. Or, sorry, the 20, first 24 hours of the fast are the, usually the hardest. But then the third day of the fast, there's this desire sometimes to want, to, oh, I, I really would love to just, just a little bit of something, just this, just that, whatnot. And I wanted him to be ready to be able to face those challenges and those things. You know, here's the interesting that was found. If he gave himself time, okay, if he gave himself some time, instead of immediately going and making the choice, took a moment, stepped away from the choice and the decision, drank a glass of water, and then he would look at the verse, whatever verse he had chosen to read or write down. What he found was that as he took time to read that verse, all of a sudden the desire was gone. Now it was a little bit challenging because those first steps of stopping and not going forward in, the in, that, in making the decision that was not a good decision was very, very difficult. But if he instead chose to look at the verse first, give himself some time, that desire would actually go away. Now again, it would come back up again because he's had it before. One of the things that we know about dopamine and the pleasure centers um, of our brain is that we don't have to have the food or the smell in front of us. Simply the picture of the food will actually activate those pleasure centers in our brain. And this is with any behavior, anything. Um, I, I counsel sometimes young ladies who are struggling with, um, with being single. And one of the things that they'll find um, is that over and over again, they find themselves watching um, chick flicks, as they, that's what we call it. I used to have the same problem myself. You'd watch chick flicks repeatedly over and over again and couldn't figure out and find out why it was that they would repeatedly fall into bad relationships or bad decisions concerning relationships. Remember, by beholding, we are changed. By beholding, our desires are different. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It starts with those thoughts. If you're struggling with a food addiction, you cannot leave the food sitting around. You do what is called a pantry purge. And I'll t it'll go into one of the principles, um, one of the principles that we're going to talk about, tips for success in the next program, uh, next section. But, but when it comes to food addictions, you do not make provision for the flesh. Have we heard that scripture before? Making provision for the flesh. Um, let me... I wanted us to look at a couple of... Okay, we'll just... We'll wait. Um,
when we choose to make decisions, um, we choose what we behold, but we make sure that we do not continue to place ourselves in situations where it's going to be more, more difficult to make the situation. Rounding, notice that people were better, sorry, not rounding, Baumeister noticed that people were better able to make decisions if they did not place themselves in circumstances where they were going to have a difficult time making that decision. How easy is it to say no to that food or that substance when it is available? If the cigarette is there, well, I'll just keep it here just in case I need something, but I'm not going to smoke it. I mean, most of us would think that's ridiculous. But how different is that from leaving the certain food around the house that, is, that we don't need? What happens, what, what happens if you are living at home with somebody else who doesn't want to make the same decisions that you do? You know, I had a patient that she was listening to this lecture. She said, you know, I know what I'm going to do. She actually took the time, she went home and she divided her pantry. And she put, she re rearranged her entire thing and, and now things weren't as conveniently placed as she would like them, but she made, the, she had two, she had um, one complete end of the pantry, um, or I guess the drawers or the cupboards, that were for her food, things that she could pick from and, and use and whatever. And there were the, all of the foods that her husband um, wanted to continue eating were placed in one cupboard that she knew that she couldn't have and didn't want to have or partake in. And she put it at the other end so that she never had to have a reason to go into the other end. She didn't want to open the pantry and have to make a decision about not choosing X, Y, and Z when she was emotionally um, there. I had another patient recently who came and she said, you know, she had lost a lot of weight, she had made different decisions, and she would find herself binge eating on even healthy things. And she actually put a picture um, of, uh, of, of herself before and herself afterwards, the, the weight that she had lost, and, how, and she wrote on there how good she had felt after having lost the weight. And she put a sign on the door that said, the answer is not in here. But it made her have to stop and to think, what is it that I want? What is it I desire? Instead of thinking about what I want right now and what I desire, let me start to think about the things that God wants, God desires for me. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.